intergalactic. Welcome to another episode of the Intergalactic Podcast. I'm Aditi Srivastav, your host. In our second episode, we'll explore an area that I'm sure is new to most of our listeners, space law. Since the global effort of space exploration spurred into action in the late 1950s, nations around the world have been accelerating their vast and ambitious initiatives to traverse the cosmos. What would happen if someone was able to seize control of space entities or resources? Or more specifically, what is stopping someone from making enormous gains doing just that? Today, we have Justine Kashnitsa as our guest. Justine is an attorney at law and space law extraordinaire, and we are so thrilled to hear her expertise on innovation, space, and law itself. Welcome, Justine. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Aditi. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So most people were entirely unaware of there being a field like space law. So could you summarize what that is to somebody who's probably never heard of it before? Well, Aditi, that that in itself is a very good question. Space law can mean very many things. Um, In general, it is a body of law that pertains to space-related activities. Uh, When people think about space lawyers, they might think about academics who study the various uh, international and uh, domestic regulations, agreements, treatises, treatises uh, and principles, um, and consider those folks to be space lawyers. Uh, but there is a great interplay between what we would consider lawyers with other domain expertise uh, who are also working with uh, space companies, space industry, and I would call those folks Uh, space industry lawyers who are actually practicing day-to-day to to advance uh, the needs and and the uh, interests of space industry. I fall into the latter category. I am a partner at a uh, law firm in Pittsburgh called Babs Calland. I uh, run our emerging technologies group, and I've had the real blessing and fortune to represent a high-growth, early-stage space company out of Pittsburgh called Astrobotic Technology for over a decade. That has really given me uh, a glimpse and a hands-on partnership with the company to watch the company grow and help it grow and mature. And from a space industry lawyer's perspective, I am trained as a corporate finance, corporate commercial lawyer uh, with experience in technology and in intellectual property licensing. And those are, uh, that is a, a traditional legal background that is incredibly uh, relevant to what a space industry lawyer is doing. Of course, I do also pay attention to all of the domestic US regulations that affect um, the company's space uh, uh, ambitions. So for example, uh, and we'll talk about this I'm sure a little later, but uh, we routinely are governed by an overarching international treaty called the Outer Space Treaty and domestic legislation that flows from it. And that governs much of what we do even contractually on a day-to-day basis at the company um, in terms of compliance. So that flows perfectly into the next question I was going to ask about. So you mentioned the Outer Space Treaty. That's 
a really big deal uh, to people involved in just space in general. So how would you explain that treaty to somebody who isn't really aware of space law? Well, I would take um, the audience on a little trip in history back to the uh, Cold War era of the 1950s when the Soviet Union launched the first um, satellite, human-made satellite, to orbit the Earth. That was Sputnik, and that caused an outcry uh, amongst the uh, capitalist countries concerned that if the Soviet Union could launch a um, satellite, uh, it could also have the capabilities to launch uh, potentially nuclear weapons, weapons of mass destruction, et cetera, into space, and therefore causing a potential uh, security issue for the globe. So very quickly, as a result of that um, incident, the international community got together, including uh, the Soviet Union at the time, and began the path of charting out how we were going to, as humanity and humans, approach the governance uh, of, of space activities. What that culminated in was the Outer Space Treaty, which has a very long name, by the way. It's the Treaty on Principles Governing the Activities of States in the Exploration and the Use of Outer Space, including the Moon and celest other celestial bodies. It's a mouthful. But um, on the 27th of January, 1967, uh, the parties came together uh, to, to enter into this treaty, really with the main principle of agreeing that the uses of outer space would be peaceful in nature and that uh, there would be no placement or prohibition on the placement of any nuclear weapons or weapons of mass destruction into space. For an international treaty is incredibly short. Uh, and it's intended to be ambiguous and, and articulate high-level principles uh, that echo this, this idea of peaceful use. The Outer Space Treaty um, after has been ratified by 110 nations with a number of other nations uh, pending ratification. They had signed the treaty, but they're waiting to, to have the treaty ratified. But it is really the governing document today that still is an architect for how we as a nation, as the U.S., think about domestic legislation. So anytime we hear about the U.S. passing a national law that relates to what we can and can't do in space, it is always within the broader framework of the Outer Space Treaty to make sure that it is within where we have international cooperation and agreement, which was absolutely one of the foundational tenets of the Outer Space Treaty back in the 60s. So kind of along that point, you touched on a lot of things about like international cooperation. Could you give kind of like an example of one of those moments in history or in recent history where international cooperation has really set the stage? Well, I would I would point back to, you know, the Outer Space Treaty and then the subsequent conventions that came as a result of that. Um, one of the greatest illustrations of this is the International Space Station, uh, which is actually in lo um, low Earth orbit to this date, will be decommissioned in, by 2028. The International Space Station is a great example of something that can be built in a program that has full international cooperation amongst the spacefaring nations. We have seen a number of um, astronauts from various countries participate in missions to the International Space Station to pursue uh, activities, research activities and exploratory ex activities that are aimed to benefit all of mankind. 
And I think that's one of those exciting um, reminders of how the international community can come together and with the proper conventions around astronaut safety and how the nations participate collectively on these programs, amazing things can be done. Nothing like unity for the common goal of advancing science. Love that. I think many of the people I work with who work for companies like Astrobotic and ULA and SpaceX and others uh, have a commitment and a real appreciation for the unity that space brings. What a fantastic concept. So if someone were to commit a crime on the International Space Station, whose laws would apply in that circumstance? That's that's a fun question. We have an uh, astronaut convention, which is a follow-on international treaty uh, under the Outer Space Treaty that articulates uh, how crimes would be dispensed um, on the International Space Station. If you're a U.S. astronaut, you would be um, punishable under U.S. law. And likewise, if you're a Japanese astronaut, you would be prosecuted under the laws of Japan. So it it is the nation's laws that would control the individual's actions. But again, it's not, it's an area that is, because it's so um, early and because we're dealing with a frontier that, that doesn't really have a very robust legal regime, uh, there's a number of questions surrounding, you know, human safety in space and human activities in space, particularly when they, uh, you know, when these are activities that are engaged by humans from various uh, jurisdictions. Um, there's a big question right now as to, uh, with with the prior the outgoing administration's um, uh, celebration of the Artemis program. Uh, which will, which is intended to bring back humans to the lunar surface uh, sometime in, in this decade, um, the questions arise, you know, how do we govern uh, the human interactions and the human activities that will be conducted on the lunar surface? So those questions are absolutely not going away and not fully answered uh, in the legal community. And that's exactly why space lawyers Um, are looking at those policies and addressing them as we speak, or trying to. That is very intriguing. So a common thread throughout a lot of your career is cultivating innovation through technology, and especially with a certain focus, of course, with law. So what drew you to this focal point, and why are you so committed to this in your career? Very early on in my career as a lawyer, uh, I had the fortune of maintaining friendships with engineers and other innovators who had gone on to start uh, emerging technology companies, so startups. And as anyone who's tried to create a startup knows, one of the first things you'll need is a good lawyer, because one of the greatest challenges to growth and getting investment and growing a company and taking that kernel of an amazing idea and converting it into a commercial technology uh, is doing it within the uh, rubric of what is legally required. Um, And laws can also help make or break that company's future success. So as soon as when I quickly after graduating from law school, uh, I had a friend who was working here at Carnegie Mellon uh, in the Robotics Institute, building a little robot to work with autistic children and uh, needed an attorney to help uh, build a company around this little robot to commercialize it. 
And as you can imagine, for a young lawyer who had, uh, you know, inspiration and ambition around seeing robotics become commercialized for um, human good purposes, this was an amazing opportunity to help a young company as their lawyer. Uh, I was working at a firm, so I had support from lawyers who, you know, knew a lot more than I did at the time and were able to help uh, turn that company into a successful company uh, and build that little robotic research project into a commercial product uh, and series of services. And working with a company like that really opened my eyes to the critical need of strong legal expertise, and in particular, legal expertise that understands emerging tech and the uh, trials and tribulations of a startup entrepreneur and a startup company. These are folks who are highly ambitious, highly motivated, often don't have the resources for very expensive uh, legal and other services, but still need that, that help. And um, being able to be part of that team, a critical part of that team, and help uh, watch that company develop and grow and mature um, was really what set me on the trajectory, and, a, and it's become a lifelong commitment for me, and I continue that to this day. So what's so important about entrepreneurship in the first place? Entrepreneurship and uh, supporting emerging technology is, I think, foundational to the future of our nation and the future to, to progress uh, globally. Um, it is, there's a number of studies that have shown that innovation and entrepreneurship are the bedrock of economic development for a nation or a community. And uh, I firmly believe that, you know, we look to the early stage entrepreneurial startups as our next uh, paving the road for our next technologies and a future that we can only begin to imagine today. Space is absolutely a fantastic illustration of that. You know, you're dealing with technologies that haven't been invented or at least haven't been applied to the environment in space uh, that can create an entirely new uh, universe of opportunity for humans uh, as we move forward. Um, at the core of all of that is innovation and on, an entrepreneurial spirit. And I think the United States, the history of the United States uh, shows that more clearly than anything else. You know, th this is a nation built uh, with the blood, sweat, and tears of entrepreneurs. Yeah, and with the confluence of entrepreneurship and space as a whole, uh, where do you see space going in the next few years? How do you see it changing? How do you see exploration just really developing as the future comes nearer and nearer? Aditi, if there is any point in time where I would, where it's no longer a pipe dream to encourage folks to pursue careers in space, this is it. We have experienced a paradigmatic shift uh, in terms of what's possible with space exploration, uh, in terms of what the market has shifted towards. Uh, so when SpaceX uh, said and, and actually made good on their promise to drive the price and, and the cost of access to space down, um, that opened the door to a whole era of entrepreneurship and innovation on the commercial space side that is uh, here to stay. And with the uh, political will that is actually bipartisan, um, which is, as you know, rare right now, supporting that uh, political will 
to promote innovation and exploration from a commercial standpoint in space, the doors are opening in a way that we haven't seen before. Uh, university students, early stage startups can actually participate in the new space economy. They can build the fundamental technologies that will be the building blocks for future exploration. Much of this is done in partnership with NASA and other space agencies around the globe that have an equal commitment and passion for unleashing the opportunities of space. Um, but I track some of the uh, market reports on this and uh, several banks have come out with reports just recently, we're talking you know, a couple months ago, that has have really sh shed light on the great opportunities for investment in space opportunities for technologies in space, activities in space, and even recouping uh, profit and benefit from this great new space race. I think one of the first things we'll see, and this is part of the global exploration roadmap for space, is uh, some kind of utilization of uh, the moon in addition to an extended uh, utilization of the orbits around Earth, like you know, lower Earth orbit, geo, a geosynchronous orbit and the others, um, the, the orbits are going to be useful for terrestrial related services. Telecommunications is obviously one that comes to mind immediately, but there are others in biology and medicine and laboratories in space that could be done on orbit uh, that we're moving towards to further our understanding of, of those uh, uh, areas of focus. But then beyond that, we have the utilization of the moon, which would be a stepping stone to establishing access into deep space exploration, including Mars. And that obviously includes the opportunity to get humans off Earth and uh, into the possibility of getting them to, to live sustainably um, in space environments. So basically what I've gathered from this is that space is only expanding in the possibilities and Basically, every field on Earth can kind of be condensed into it in a way. Um, so what you've been talking about with the new innovations and new ideas surrounding space, how does space law fit into this? So, again, if we take the broader definition of space law, I would say it falls into several categories, and I'll touch on several of them. So first off, commercial law. Um, we any kind of space mission or space activity for uh, that a company is looking to do requires the uh, the drafting and negotiation of commercial agreements with either you know partners at the government level like NASA um, or ESA or something like that or co other commercial partners uh, those relationships are all forged in some uh, commemorated in some kind of contract uh, in addition we have the field of intellectual property law which is a fascinating field and critical to a discussion around innovation. And so whenever we're talking about uh, building new technologies uh, to, for space um, or building out the frontier, we can't uh, ignore the intellectual property protection, uh, which is going to be so critical for companies to ascertain um, and protect their inventions and ideas as, as we move forward. We also need to think about, obviously, regulatory law, and that is a critical part of what we do um, as space lawyers, and that is understanding what's the changing laws. In some cases, we actually work with our government relations teams um, to help advise on policies 
and laws as they get introduced to make sure that those laws take into account the needs of industry. Uh, why these are, things are so important is that laws can either uh, open doors to innovation and um, the build out of commercial ecosystems, or it can be uh, restrictive, it can create barriers to commercialization. And we as industry lawyers who are promoting space commercialization are, are very eager to make sure that the voice of industry is heard uh, in Congress, uh, at the president, presidential executive uh, branch level and beyond to make sure that the laws that are, are passed are actually friendly uh, to, to, towards our commercialization plans and goals. Um, those regulations are take various shapes and sizes. Some of them, uh, some of the regulations address communication. So the FCC, for example, governs uh, the communications uh, between space and Earth. Um, there are laws that govern uh, the export of technical information beyond the U.S. Those are called export laws, uh, and every country has some variant of export laws, and it dictates whether or not and to what extent we can communicate beyond our nation with other nations around technical information related to space. We have laws that govern actual launch, which is, you know, how do we get approval uh, at the United States to be able to fly something um, to, to space? Uh, and that, that is uh, another area where we will work closely with NASA, um, the FAA, and other agencies to make sure that we have the proper authority and licenses to launch. Uh, those are just a, a, a very small snapshot of the types of regulations that we look to um, and, and we have to comply with on behalf of our clients when we advise them and help them grow and build. And all of this is in service to helping the company grow and succeed. So one of the first things that a young company is going to need is investment. And investors always ask the question of, well, you know, what is there? Is, is there any certainty in the legal regime for what you're doing such that we know that at some point in the future we can recoup our investment? The answer to that question very squarely lies in the work of, you know, what the space lawyers and the companies need to do to give comfort to their investors and their partners to make those those activities happen. So I'm hoping that, you know, from this you you can recognize just how important space law and space industry law is going to be to help uh, support and augment and, and uh, make sure that this dream of a new space frontier and future is actually possible and in our lifetimes. It, technologically, it's there. I think law is always a little bit more reactive. And uh, we have um, the very uh, big responsibility of making sure that it's done right. Yeah, space law truly is fascinating. It's so expansive and it's so important too. Um, did you always feel inclined to pursue law, specifically like space law, or where did you get that interest from? You know, it's interesting. At one point in my life, if you had asked me what I'd be, I'd tell you I'd be a Supreme Court justice. But there's only nine positions, and I don't think I really understood what that meant in terms of my odds. <laughs> but but it's, it's, my, my career actually has been very interesting because I was able to marry my interest in law very early on with the example that I gave you with passions of mine. And I've always been a tinkerer and I've been always interested in engineering uh, and the sciences. I uh, grew up building models and studying aviation history. 
I still fly RC planes and drones um, for fun. Um, my brother and I launched the Estes rockets, you know, for fun growing up. So, so space and aviation history was a fundamental part of my childhood. My grandfather was a civil engineer um, in the U.S. building airports. Uh, my husband's grandfather, you know, was building aircraft. So it's very much part of our, our narrative. Um, and to be able to connect that with the legal practice and your day-to-day -day job has been um, a game changer for me. And it make, keeps me motivated and excited about my, uh, my career. The law is a language. Um, it's, it's, it's a language that you use to achieve your dreams. Um, and the best thing about space is that it opens the door and unlocks career opportunities for folks who may not necessarily be on a path to be an astronaut or an engineer uh, or a scientist. And I think if there's one message to communicate to our audience, it's, it's that. It's that you can be, you can have an interest in space and have a fantastic career and be an active participant and, and thought leader in the space history without necessarily being um, on, the, on the technical side. Yeah, truly. So for high schoolers like me, uh, we have to start thinking about uh, our careers and our futures, and it's kind of daunting in a way. So how would you suggest, uh, from a really broad perspective, going about that and finding something that you truly enjoy and pa are passionate about? Don't swim upriver if you don't have to. <laughs> and, and what I mean by that is the beauty about passion is that it organically evolves and develops, and it's... Uh, individual to every person and a, a self-reflection around your what you're good at and then what actually you know you enjoy and sometimes those two things are married sometimes they're not <laughs> but trying to understand you know where your strengths lie and then where your passions lie and committing yourself to finding a path forward that marries them as closely as possible is the best advice I can give to anyone who's uh, at, at a high school level, because you are you have been given so much in terms of education that is very well rounded and and across the board. And you may know, and and sometimes you may think you're interested in something because you had a teacher that was really inspirational, um, and and opened a door to a subject for you. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you're bad at something else. You just don't know. So. Early on, it's really important to experiment and explore with as much diverse uh, access to education as possible, uh, building out an intellectual curiosity, and then taking notes, right? Taking notes as you go in that direction, what you liked, what you didn't, what works for you, what doesn't. And over time, that becomes a game plan and a strategy for your future. But quite honestly, it's it's you can plan and strategize all you want and it's important but you really to to truly find your passion you have to be open to opportunities that may knock on your door completely unsuspectingly and take those opportunities when they come uh, because those may put you on a path that you at the time may have no idea may lead you to a career that becomes the, the career you've dreamed of. So from a personal ex example, I told you, you know, at one point I would have thought that I'd be in politics or pursuing a policy um, or political theory or legal approach that's more on the um, 
judicial side. And my the fact that because I had friends that we grew up in similar ways with this passion for aerospace and aviation, suddenly the, the hobbies in my life that I never thought were more than hobbies married with my legal career such that, and I've pursued it, I said yes to those. And then, you know, a decade later, I find myself uh, working with one of the most exciting space companies in the country right now. And if I'm correct, um, you got your undergraduate degree in political science, I believe. Yeah. So what was that like? And how did that contribute to, because you obviously did not go down that path completely. So how did that contribute to like your time in law school or your time beyond that? Well, political science is sort of a known feeder for uh, law school. I think a lot of my political science um, students and, and colleagues ended up as, as lawyers. Um, so that's not really surprising. I think what's interesting is that I still use and apply political theory and some of the underpinnings that I learned at undergrad to how I evaluate the regulatory regime for space. Um, how I see the regulatory regime for space evolving and how to do that uh, with legitimacy. If you un it, it, it has to be done with legitimacy of law. And to do that, you have to understand the political philosophy underpinning our laws. So I would say I use that all the time, but in a less direct way. You know, when I'm uh, working on a contract for a client, I'm not necessarily thinking about Plato or Aristotle. <laughs> But, but, but at the same time, the commitments to laws and structures and systems become very much applicable when you're thinking about a new frontier. Think about space as a legal vacuum. You know, we have this unique opportunity to draw a governance structure on a pretty much clean slate. Of course, we have commitments. Uh, terrestrially to our to our legal regimes through the treaties, etc. But it's it's the first of its kind opportunity for modern humans to actually determine how we're going to govern and govern ourselves, you know, on the moon, on Mars, etc. And that opens a door that is ripe with political science implications. How are we going to govern ourselves? Are we a democracy? Are we something else entirely? Uh, how do we evaluate systems that work, systems that don't work here on Earth? You know, those those questions are very much uh, ripe for for the uh, answering. And and the time right now is 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 the time is now to answer those questions or start thinking about those questions. Yeah, I really liked what you brought up about it being a legal vacuum because at this point, space is basically what we make it to be. There's nothing nothing really there for um that really constricts what humans can do so it's really up to us and up to the future of people passionate about space so a general question for people who are thinking about law school uh what's it like um how does somebody know if they're ready to go on that path because you know from the get-go you hear a lot about how it's notoriously really challenging and obviously requires a lot of commitment and a lot of energy. So how did you know you were ready for that? The law has changed dramatically over over the last, I would say, you know, five decades, six decades. Um, I think one of the best pieces of advice, I still think it is a fantastic profession. 
uh, it is again a language that is only can only open doors um, for folks. It introduces a new way of critical thinking and logic uh, that can be applicable to any field and discipline. Um, the law is absolutely a a fantastic profession to embark on, but I do think that um, students thinking about law need to be uh, very shrewd about doing their homework ahead of time to make sure it's for them. Law school is expensive. Um, and, you know, the career path that you choose is a, after law school is going to, to dictate, you know, what you do. Um, I would say I, I come from a family of doctors. And so I didn't really have uh, anyone, any mentor in my childhood growing up that could t tell me about the legal practice in the United States. Um, my family originally is from Poland, and my family history has lawyers in it uh, and academics and, and legal practitioners, but I didn't have anyone to really uh, look at and emulate or, or even know what I was getting myself into. So if there's uh, advice that I would wish someone had offered me um, when I was in high school uh, and college would be to reach out to people that you know who are lawyers across a variety of different disciplines. I happen to have a very uh, unique and, and fun practice. Um, there's but there's lawyers who think that tax law is the funnest thing they've ever seen. So I, I think it's about um, identifying lawyers who you know, have pursued various careers in litigation, in corporate law, in tax law, in employment law, in regulatory law, maybe on the judicial track, and talk to those folks about their day-to-day -day experiences, their career plans, you know, how they got to where they are and what their days look like. And based on that, you can glean a lot in terms of where you see yourself and what seems like um, the kind of job that, that you would take in law that would bring you the greatest satisfaction and allow you to pursue those passions and marry, you know, your your legal ambitions with your with your non-legal passions. Yeah, mentorship is truly so critical across any and all disciplines. Is there a particular mentor that you look up to or that guided you on your path? Um, I have had several uh, over the course of my legal career um, in different phases of my life. Um, with respect to space law in particular, I think um, I remember meeting and forging a friendship with uh, a space lawyer who um, had an illustrious career drafting the uh, treatise um, on the law of the sea, which for those of us space lawyers who follow this, the, the laws of the sea, the international laws of the sea, are often used as a um, analogy or precursor to uh, the space laws that we we um, we, we talk about and think about. And um, his experience drafting the laws of the sea, getting international commitment and support on that process, um, and his keen eye towards regulatory structures and and requirements from a space law perspective, really. Uh, help me to orient my thinking around space regulatory issues to this day. And I would say that his mentorship 
uh, really helped cement my thinking around space law. Um, but there has been so many others. I mean, I've had uh, mentors that have helped me think about the law as a profession that can be leveraged to build economic development through entrepreneurship, um, folks who are not on the legal side, but on the innovation entrepreneurship side that I've had the benefit of working with. So it's hard to answer. There's no one specific uh, mentor, but, they, but uh, surrounding yourself with people who have experienced history in the area that you're working in, um, have experienced, have been, have walked in your shoes in your career. Um, I've also been fortunate to have women lawyers at, at my firms uh, that have been uh, very helpful in paving the way for what it would look like to be a female partner at a law firm, which is an entirely separate subject, um, but equally important to career development. Reaching out early and forging relationships with people that you admire uh, is a such an important part of career development. Are those principles that you can apply to building confidence in the workplace or learning how to advocate for yourself? You know, this question of advocating for yourself is, is a challenging one. My entire day is spent advocating on behalf of clients. And yet, when it comes to advocating for myself, that's one of the hardest things that I have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. I do it. I don't like it. Um, I'd rather be advocating on behalf of someone else. Uh, but it is absolutely critical, especially for women um, in, in pursuing careers, is to, to learn to advocate despite your reservations, despite any kind of feelings that you might have that, that, that you know, to the contrary, uh, being a strong advocate for yourself and getting others to buy in and advocate on your behalf are fundamental ways, uh, critical to, to, I think, a successful career. And you can start that early, right? It doesn't have to be, you know, you, everyone thinks of advocating for one, oneself when it comes to getting a higher salary or a promotion or something like that. But that's, it starts very early and can be, and should be done, you know, as in high school, even earlier. And it starts with asserting yourself, knowing what you want and pursuing it and not standing down uh, to, to achieve your goal. Um, not saying that compromise is, is, is never a good thing. It, it is very much a critical part of, of maturing, but being able to assert for, for the things that you want and the positions that, that you need, um, you know, are, are important. Asserting yourself and knowing what you want can be tough, but it's something that everybody should learn and everybody should use whenever necessary. So what are you excited to learn more about in space and space law? I, I can't wait to see what the next years will bring. Um, I am, first off, uh, thrilled to see that Astrobotic is going to uh, attempt a, the first ever commercial lunar landing uh, on the moon as a young company, as a commercial enterprise. Um, I am excited to see what other developments we will see in the future in terms of innovation, uh, both, you know, in space that can be used for terrestrial purposes, particularly in the areas of medicine. Um, I, I just, I was talking to, um, I'm actually involved in building something called the Keystone Space Collaborative, which is a nonprofit designed to develop a space ecosystem and industry in Pennsylvania, uh, Ohio, and West Virginia. And 
through that role, I was I meet a, a number of fascinating people interested in space. But I was just talking to um, the medical community and learned about the importance of testing uh, both stem cells on chips and organoids in a zero g gravity zero gravity environment as foundational to advancing our knowledge and developments in that area. What we can glean from that, you know, time will tell, but I can't wait to see what the future holds. I also can't wait to see the settlement of the lunar surface and how that unfolds and the legal principles and governing structures that we will bring with us um, to off-Earth uh, planetary bodies. And then, you know, hopefully not so far in the distant future, certainly within our lifetimes, uh, see the actual human settlement of Mars, or at least uh, the uh, human um, exploration and trip to, to, to Mars. Those are, those are really areas of such excitement for me. It is, you know, everything I think about when I look up into the night sky and look at the moon and look at the stars, um, and I just see an unlocked potential um, for human uh, in innovation. And it's, it's a moment that really inspires and, and drives um, people to pursue uh, intellectual curiosity, uh, even in my own daily life, um, even though I know that this is, it takes a village to make this happen, uh, but it's, it's, it's happening and, and I can't wait to see how it evolves. Yeah, truly so cool. Do you think technology companies in Pittsburgh and this region as a whole can work together more in the future? Absolutely, and that is actually one of the goals of this space collaborative that we're putting together. We decided, you know, you can't really build a space industry with one company, um, so, but we have the building blocks here in Pittsburgh for uh, so much that we can do around space. We have we have probably some of the best robotics uh, engineering expertise in the in the world here in Pittsburgh. Um, we have advanced manufacturing technologies. We have a strong industrial and manufacturing history, and and work ethic that can uh, achieve hardware, software products with, um, I would say, cost efficiencies that are hard to find elsewhere um, in the country. I think our space computing capabilities in Pittsburgh are um, second to none. And if we put our heads together and really start early and coalesce these, these folks who are currently doing projects desperately, and making sure that they all know that the others exist and work to partner together and pursue funding opportunities from some of the agencies like NASA and the Department of Defense and others around space technologies and space innovation, um, we will see this region emerge. And I really believe we have the opportunity to do this as one of the key space regions for mobility, robotics, uh, transportation, possibly space medicine. I really hope to see Pittsburgh become like this new hub for space innovation, space exploration as a whole. How do you see Pittsburgh contributing to it on that larger scale? I think there's interest already. I think we can um, do a lot to make those connections and networking opportunities happen for people. We have uh, Carnegie Mellon and Pitt and the other universities in the community that are already so active around uh, innovation and um, the translation of research into commercial companies. 
uh, drawing on that experience, uh, we have, you know, folks at both Pitt and Carnegie Mellon and others and, and West Virginia University and other universities already working on technologies uh, that are NASA funded or that have application in space. And it's really a question of um, making sure the public is aware of what's happening today um, in this region around space and then combining those efforts and making sure that they're speaking with one another to pursue even bigger and broader uh, and more ambitious plans around it. Um, but again, I, I really believe that we have entered into a world where more and more uh, companies are recognizing space as a real market to pursue. And so the opportunities for partnership, engagement, network collaboration will only grow. And, and again, Pittsburgh can play a central role in that with the partnership between thought leaders, uh, universities, the industry, um, and, and the economic development community. And I know that the, uh, legislator, the, the, the legislators in our uh, community are very much in favor and behind the work that, that we're trying to do around space. So we seem to be almost running out of time. So I'd like to ask uh, one last question. If you could sum up your life uh, so far into a little slogan, what do you think it would be? Aditi, this is, uh, it's hard to get that kind of question without having had that time to think about it. I would say breaking barriers and forging frontiers in law, in space law. I love that. That's fantastic. If I can achieve any of that, that will put a capstone on my, you know, entrepreneurial legal journey. Truly, that is a fantastic slogan, especially to come up with, you know, right on the spot. That concludes today's episode of Intergalactic. I'd love to thank Justine for giving us some real insight into space law and for joining us today. Justine, would you like to add anything else? Thanks, Aditi. This, this has been really fun. And I only would say that I encourage anyone who listens to this podcast to uh, look into possible careers and opportunities in space that is tied to their particular interest and situation. And, um, you know, if you ever want to look me up, I'm a practicing attorney in Pittsburgh, uh, and I'm happy to, I always work with uh, students uh, and try to, to work with as many folks as possible to get them excited about entrepreneurship, tech, aerospace, and of course, space. You've been listening to the Intergalactic Podcast, production support by Eileen Owens, editing by Daniel Gillies, music is Problem Thing by Dave Kiefer, and this is your host, Aditi Srivastava. Please tune in for our next episode, where I'll be exploring more of space, tech, and beyond.